Hi folks, my name is Jeff Wright. I'm the researcher, the writer, and the storyteller behind Trojan War, the podcast. Ryan has kindly invited me to come on to his particular podcast and offer up a short plug of my own show. So here goes. First of all, I'm really, really honored to be here. I use Ryan's History of Ancient Greece all the time. Whenever I require a quick and incisive and entertaining overview of a particular period of ancient Greek history that I'm researching, it's Ryan's podcast that I turn to. It's good, it's reliable, and it's entertaining. And you already know that or you wouldn't be listening to this now. So thanks, Ryan. So a quick overview of what I'm doing with Trojan War, the podcast. Well, I am really telling in 20 serialized episodes the Trojan War epic cycle. Now, just a quick primer if you're unfamiliar with that particular technical term. Back in the Bronze Age of Greece, sometime around 1250 BC or so, there was a war. Well, there might have been a war. We don't really know. The historical record is really, really fuzzy, and archaeologists, historians, and academics continue to debate it. But there might have been a war, and if there was a war, it was between the ancient Greek world and the city called Troy. Now, that war, which may or may not have happened, was talked about after it may or may not have happened for about 500 years inside of what we academics now refer to as the oral storytelling tradition. Basically, guys like me walking into an auditorium, a great hall, a taverna, or something like that, and telling the stories. So the story consisted and hung around in the ancient Bronze Age world for about 500 years. Then sometime around 700 BCE or so, the Greeks developed a written language, and a lot of the stories got written down in a wonderfully epic poem titled The Iliad by an author that we traditionally refer to as Homer. And after that, well, the Greek world went crazy. More authors, more writers, more storytellers got in in the act, and the Trojan War epic cycle continued to develop plot, characters, some plot, all the way up to the Roman occupation of Greece. And then a guy named Virgil actually sat down and wrote a companion epic titled The Aeneid. And that's what we have today. Together, this huge jambalaya of myth, story, historical record, true fact, might be fact, archaeological verifiable fact, not archaeological verifiable fact, all of which collectively we title the Trojan War Echo Cycle. Now, it's an incredibly amazing story, and the good news is that you know the characters of this story already. There's Achilles, there's Helen of Troy, there's Zeus, there's Aphrodite, there's Hector, and of course, there's a famous wooden horse. You've got love, hate, war, revenge, action, betrayal, sex, violence, cowardice, geopolitics, it's all there. Scholars refer to the Trojan War epic as Western culture's original and foundational epic, and that's great, but I like to think of it as the granddaddy of all our really big stories. So... How does Trojan War the podcast work? It's 20 serialized episodes, start to finish. Each episode is approximately an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long. I spend the first 45 to 50 minutes telling you the next sequence or series of events in the ongoing story arc. And then I spend the final 15 minutes of every episode geeking out on something I call the post-story commentary. I play around with the issues, the ideas, the historical, the literary, and the cultural concepts that inform the epic. As I've already told you, the story which I tell is the foundational cultural and literary work of the entire ancient Greek world. You did not grow up without knowing the content, the stories, the backstories, and the characters that I tell. You knew them inside and out. They were your culture's foundational document. So, if you want to know Greek history, if you want to know ancient Greek politics, if you want to know ancient Greek culture, then you need to know the story of the Trojan War epic. And my podcast, I'm hoping, in 20 quick episodes, is your easiest and most fun, accessible way into that. Okay, I've talked long enough. Hope you come and listen to the podcast sometime. And now on with the big show, the continuing history 
of ancient Greece. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 33, The Great King Darius. During the 6th century BC, a different faith began to spread rapidly throughout the Persian Empire with the message that there is only one God who dwells in heaven and rewards the good and just with eternal salvation, but the wicked shall receive everlasting damnation in a realm of darkness ruled over by a terrifying demon. Sound familiar? Well, this religious philosophy would be passed on to the Greeks, and then later to Gentile Christian converts. In fact, the hereditary priestly class of this religion, Zoroastrianism, was the Magi, who were keen astrologers and have a direct connection to Christianity, as it is often believed that three Magi used their knowledge of the stars to supposedly make their way to Bethlehem and identify a young so-called king of the Jews named Jesus. The founder of this faith, the Persian prophet Zarathustra, better known in Greek as Zoroaster, is notoriously difficult to fix in place and time. He probably lived in the region of Bactria, or modern-day northeastern Iran and southwestern Afghanistan. Archaeological evidence and linguistic comparison between the Old Avestan language of eastern Iran and the Vedic Sanskrit of India, which are both descendants of the Proto-Indo-Iranian language, seems to give a window of between 1500 to 1000 BC, before the migration by the Iranians from the steppe to the Iranian plateau, around 1000 BC. The Iranians of the Late Bronze Age, like other contemporary civilizations, worshipped multiple deities. Among these was Ahura Mazda, the god of wisdom and light. According to legend, when Zoroaster was in his early 20s, he had a series of visions that led him to believe that Ahura Mazda was the only god the uncreated god who had created the world and everything in it. Following this revelation, he wrote a series of hymns, known as the Gothas, which became the core of later Zoroastrianism religious tone, called the Avestan. Ahura Mazda represented wisdom, benevolence, and general goodness, and in particular was the upholder of truth. In opposition stood the false deities of the old religions, called devas, or demons, who delighted in war and strife. Foremost among them was Angra Manu, the god of adversary and evil spirits, and was a master of deception. To his followers, the human condition was a lifelong struggle between Arta, or truth, and Druj, or lie. The purpose of mankind was to sustain the truth through positive thoughts, words, and deeds, and to root out and destroy falsehood. If one leads a good life, Ahura Mazda will welcome you into his heavenly realm, and one day, he would lead the attack against the forces of Angra Manu. This epic battle is not predetermined, as you are free to control your own destiny and pick your side. The older entrenched priesthoods were not happy about Zoroaster's new worldview, and he was eventually forced to leave his home and travel to a neighboring kingdom, where the royal family embraced his ideas and eventually made them the official religion of his land. Over the centuries separating Zoroaster's life and the reign of the Achaemenid kings, the worship of Ahura Mazda became widely established among the Persians and the Medes of the Zagros. Unlike other peoples of the ancient Near East and the Greeks, the Persians shunned animal sacrifice. Its most well-known elements included stepfire altars, since fire and light were symbols of truth and sacred to the deity. In addition, fire was also correlated with purity, not just of spirit, but of body and earth. 
Thus, fire burns away impurities and banishes the darkness. Other components of the world, such as water and earth, took on a vital role too. For this reason, Zoroastrians didn't bury their dead. They constructed massive raised circular structures called dakma, which means towers of silence in Old Persian. From there, the deceased was left exposed to the sun and vultures, which would pick the corpse clean. So why did we start today's episode with a brief review on Zoroastrianism and Ahura Mazda? Well, whether Cyrus and Cambyses were Zoroastrian believers is open to debate, but there is no doubt that this religion played a prominent role in the life and actions of his successor, Darius, who would go on to frame his ascension to the throne as the will of Ahura Mazda. In the midst of preparing for this civil war, with the sudden death of Cambyses, Bardia found himself as the unchallenged ruler of the Persian Empire, and so he retired to his summer capital of Akbatana. He had been at Susa, which is the winter capital of the Persian Empire. Apparently, according to Herodotus, Cambyses' soldiers had not been in the loop about what was going on. They did know that Cambyses supposedly had killed his brother, and of course, Perxaspus wasn't going to tell anyone that he committed regicide, if he in fact did. So to them, the Persian throne was being held by a rightful king. Regardless, whether the two brothers were feuding, he was a legitimate son of Cyrus, and thus held a rightful claim to the throne now anyways, with Cambyses gone. So they went back to Ecbatana and lived under the reign of Bardiae for the next seven months, and during that time, no Persian or Mede dared to oppose him. But finally, a noble named Otanes, the one who was appointed as judge and forced to sit in the throne covered by his father's skin, well, he began to suspect that something was amiss because the king had never wandered away from the citadel, nor summoned any of the noble Persians into his presence. These suspicions led him to send a message to his daughter, Fadaimi, who had been living in the royal palace. She told him that she also had not seen Bardiah or any other woman who had relations with the king, because they were all separated. With this, Otanes' suspicions increased, and so he asked his daughter to sneak into the king's bedchamber at night and feel around to see if he had ears because if he didn't have ears, she would know he was an imposter. Herodotus doesn't mention why the ears were relevant in this, nor could I find anywhere that said why either. If anyone knows, definitely let me know. Anyways, as you probably suspect it, when she did this, she felt an earless man. The next morning, she sent a message to her father, notifying him of her findings. He determined that the king was a fake, and immediately divulged this information to six Persian nobles whom he trusted. These men were Intrafernes, Gabrias, Hydarnes, Megabizus, Aspathines, and Darius. The cabal of seven Persians pledged their good faith to each other and discussed their next course of action. Of course, they all agreed that the fake Bardiah needed to be ousted, but the question was how and when. Otanis argued that they should not rush to do anything and should carefully lay out a plan beforehand while increasing their numbers to drive him out of the capital. But the youngest and most brash of the seven nobles was Darius, or Darayavahas in Old Persian. He was the son of Hystaspes, who was the satrap of Bactria at the time of Cambyses' death, and had been the personal Doryphorus, or spear bearer, of Cambyses in his Egyptian campaign. He pondered whether civil war would win an intact and unified empire, and so he put forth a scheme to skip civil war entirely by secretly assassinating Bardiah instead. Persuading six other Persian nobles of the righteousness of his cause, the conspirators rode out from Syria towards the Zagros Mountains. Meanwhile, Bardiah's court was on the move from Ecbatana, 
and they made a brief stop at the fortress of Sikayavati in Media. Unbeknownst to their plot, when Darius and his companions rode up to the gates, claiming urgent business with the king, they were granted entrance. Before anyone realized the true nature of their business, they had burst into Bardai's chambers, and a dagger was plunged into the king's chest. Knowing very well that the Persians wouldn't take too kindly to his regicide, Darius then dazzled everyone with his storytelling. He came up with a story that several years ago, when Cambyses went crazy in Egypt, he had Bardai killed, and that the person who was on the throne was a magi, named Gamata, who used his magical powers to convince the people that he was really Bardaya. Since they had similar appearances and the real Bardai hadn't been seen in a while, it's easy to see why the people were duped. Darius claimed that he had stumbled across the plot and took it upon himself to rid them of the imposter. The reason so many Persians believed this story was because the Persians considered themselves to be the most honest people, and to accuse a highborn noble of telling a lie was at odds with their most deeply held core beliefs of Zoroastrianism. Not everyone bought into Darius' story though, but it does show that he knew which buttons to push in order to portray his actions in the most heroic light as possible. The death of the false Bardaya later would be annually celebrated in Persia by a feast called the Magiafani, or the killing of the Magi, at which no Magi were allowed to show themselves. It seems then that when Herodotus wrote his histories, he was influenced by this sort of propaganda that Darius and the Egyptians had set out about both Cambyses' craziness and the murdering of his brother. Most modern scholars, though, dispute this traditional story. They believe that the person who ruled for seven months was probably the real Bardaya, and that the story of his impersonation by a magus was an invention of Darius to justify his seizure of the throne. Anyways, when the Persian people found out that they had been duped, they all turned on the other innocent magi in the city, murdering all that they could catch before nightfall. Herodotus describes a scene where the conspirators ran through the streets holding magi heads and proclaiming that they were now free from their dominion. Since Persia was now without a king though, the conspirators took it upon themselves to determine the fate of the empire. So a few days later, in the dead of night, the seven conspirators rode out from the fortress and halted facing east. At first, the seven discussed the form of government that should now rule over Persia. A democratic republic was strongly pushed by Otanis, an oligarchy was pushed by Megabyzus, while Darius pushed for a monarchy. After stating that a republic would lead to corruption and internal fighting, while a monarchy would be led with a single-mindedness not possible in other governments, Darius was able to convince the other three nobles that a monarchy was the correct form of government, and thus by a simple majority, a monarchy was chosen. In order to decide who would become the next Persian monarch, the six nobles, Otani stated that he had no interest in becoming king and pulled himself out from consideration, decided that it should be left up to fate, and so they devised a test. All six of these nobles pledged that whoever's horse whinnied first after sunrise would be held as the next great king. Herodotus says that Darius won because he cheated. He supposedly had a slave named Obaris take his groom out to the location, as well as a mare in heat, and let them get it on. So on the next day, whenever the conspirators met, Darius's horse remembered the previous night and loudly neighed first. Herodotus also records an alternative version. In this one, on the night before, Obaris gave the mare's genitals a thorough rubdown and didn't clean off his hands afterwards, so that the next morning, he whipped those bad boys out and drove the groom crazy, causing it to make all sorts of grunting noises. This version is a little weird, and I'll let you uh, ponder over why. So anyways, 
Darius himself didn't record such colorful details. He simply recorded that he won by the will of a whore or Mazda. Herodotus then says that immediately after the horse whinnied, lightning appeared and thunder sounded, leading the other nobles to believe that Ahura Mazda signaled his agreement, causing them to dismount and kneel before Darius. While the story is a neat one, and it's a very Herodotus-like tale, it's far more likely that the consensus for their new king already had been reached before the assassination, as Darius was the instigator of the coup and the most bold and ambitious among the conspirators. Anyways, they then left for Pasargidae and sent word to his army, still encamped in Syria, to come join, because only in the presence of all of the most powerful clan chiefs with his army could his claims be made official. If Darius's claims were true, he was a great hero and nobody would be more deserving. If they were lies, he proved himself to be bold, imaginative, capable, and ruthless, which were all traits that could benefit the empire. Regardless, in late 522 BC, he was officially crowned the king of Persia. Following his coronation at Pasargidae, Darius moved to Ecbatana, where almost immediately news arrived of revolts spreading across the empire by those who supported Bardia, as well as others who used the opportunity for political gain. So one by one, like a giant game of whack-a-mole, Darius would be forced to deal with them for the next two years. While it may seem like Darius did not have the support of the people, he had a loyal army, led by close confidants and nobles. So with their support, Darius was able to methodically dispatch armies and quell every revolt, executing a total of eight leaders, as the living embodiment of Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Light and Wisdom, proving that their deception and lies would not go unpunished. Elam was the first to revolt, and so Darius sent Atanis with a large force to arrest the leader of the uprising a man named Askina, and take him to Susa where he was executed. But in doing so, Atanis had to withdraw much of the army from Babylon, and so Babylon felt bold enough to revolt too. A supposed son of Nabonidus, who called himself Nebuchadnezzar III, had inflamed all of Mesopotamia into revolt. So feeling personally affronted, Darius gathered a large army and then personally descended from the Zagros towards Babylon to confront the rebels. After two crushing defeats, Nebuchadnezzar III took refuge behind the walls of Babylon. Herodotus really doesn't mention the revolts at all, as our information about it comes from the Behistun inscription, but he does mention the siege of Babylon in fairly great detail. But needless to say, like with Cyrus's siege of Babylon, take Herodotus's account here with a grain of salt. Anyways, so apparently in preparation for the siege, the Babylonians had killed off all of their women except one per household, so as to ration the food supply. This apparently emboldened them, and led to them climbing up to the parapets and dancing and shouting, even going as far as to mock Darius. One of them proclaimed that the Persians would not conquer them until mules gave birth. So of course, you know what's going to happen next, right? Well, for a year and a half, Darius and his armies were unable to retake the city, though he attempted many tricks and strategies, even copying that which Cyrus had employed when he captured Babylon. All hope seemed lost. However, the situation changed in Darius' favor when a divine miracle occurred. One of the seven nobles was Megabizus, and he had a son named Zoparis, who apparently owned a mule that gave birth. Realizing the significance of this event, Zoparius decided to mutilate himself by cutting off his own nose and ears and whipped himself until he was covered in blood. Then he went over to the Babylonians and pretended to be a deserter, claiming that Darius had done this to him. Believing his story and taking pity on the noble Persian, he was allowed entrance into the Babylonian camp. 
He then led the Babylonian army in three consecutive victories against the Persians, after which he became so completely idolized by the Babylonians that they appointed him as the commander-in-chief of the wall's forces. Finally, when Darius made an attack on the wall, Zoprias opened up the gates and let the Persians inside. And so this was how Babylon was taken a second time, at least according to Herodotus. Darius then had all the conspirators publicly executed. Herodotus doesn't mention anyone by name, but presumably the impostor Nebuchadnezzar III was among those executed. Shortly thereafter, news arrived that Persia and Media were in open revolt. A Median usurper claimed to be Phraertes and an heir of Cyaxares, and a Persian noble named Vayazdata also claimed to be Bardia. Both rebel leaders were impostors. Vayazdata struck eastward into the satrapy of Bactria, but was repulsed by a governor loyal to Darius, while Phraortes pushed westward towards Mesopotamia. In the spring of 521 BC, Darius led an overwhelming assault on Phraortes' army, capturing their leader and mutilating his face. He was then chained to one of the gates of Ecbatana, for the other Iranian nobles to ponder before he was impaled on a stake. Those Median nobles who had joined him were flayed alive with their skin hung up to sea. The spring also saw a revolt by the Parthians, which required three pitched battles in May and June before the region was pacified. At the same time, another army was dispatched to deal with the Persian army of Vayazdata that was still at large, resulting in a bloody victory for Darius's army and the capture of Vayazdata. Darius impaled him and his allies on a field of stakes. Egypt also took its shot at independence, but this insurrection was put down with minimal force. In Egypt, Darius executed the Persian satrap that promoted this rebellion through his heavy-handed rule. He also reversed Cambyses' military failures by completing the conquest of coastal Libya and receiving tribute from the Nubian kings of Kush. Toward the end of 521 BC, after most of the other rebellions were doused, one last revolt flared to life at Babylon where a usurper had taken the throne name of Nebuchadnezzar IV, claiming to be another son of Nabonidus. Darius dispatched another army, and they easily retook the city. The rebel leaders were crucified within the city's walls. Darius then stripped Babylon of its defensive walls and tore down all of its gates, resulting in it being the last Babylonian revolt during his reign. An Assyrian rebellion flared up in 520 BC, but it was also put down with minimal force. After quelling all of these rebellions, although he was the son of Hystaspes and the grandson of Asarmes, and thus could distantly claim descent back to Achaemenes, Darius still married himself to every female heir of Cyrus's line to ensure that nobody else could challenge his rule. This included Atossa and Artistone, both daughters of Cyrus, Parmis, the daughter of the real Bardia, and even Phidaimi, the daughter of Atanes, who had revealed the identity of the Magi, among many, many others. At Behistun, a fortress located near Ecbatana in Media, 66 meters above ground level on a mountainside, Darius commissioned a monumental stone relief of himself riding his horse, cut out with an inscription that tells the full story of his lineage, his triumph over Bardia, and his ongoing war against the forces of evil. It began to take shape during the summer of 521 BC and recorded the events through the end of 519 BC. We know this because it was suitably rounded off by an image of Skunka, a Scythian leader living east of the Caspian Sea, who as we will see, will be the last of his victories before the relief was completed. It was written in the newly created Old Persian script, as a first-person account by Darius, and was copied and published across the empire. The inscription includes three versions of the same text, 
written in three different cuneiform script languages. Old Persian, more on this shortly, Elamite, and Babylonian, which was a variant of Akkadian. This inscription is to cuneiform what the Rosetta Stone is to Egyptian hieroglyphs, as the document most crucial in the decipherment of a previously lost script. While its overriding aim was not to record individual political events, but to emphasize that Darius's rule was divinely ordained, and that the peace of the empire was now secure, Herodotus would have had access to it, though he couldn't read it, and thus his translations would have had significant influence on his histories, whether the deeds were all true or not, with some surely being embellished. While there is no absolute consensus about the adherence of the kings before Darius, it is well established that Darius was an adherent of Zoroastrianism, or at least a firm believer in Ahura Mazda. As we can see at the Behistun inscription, Darius believed that Ahura Mazda had appointed him to rule the Achaemenid Empire. In fact, the name Behistun is derived from an old Persian word meaning place of the gods, and of those gods, the first and only place was given to Ahura Mazda. Darius had dualistic convictions and believed that each rebellion in his kingdom was the work of Druj, the enemy of Asha, and it was up to him to defeat those who incarnate the lie. He also believed that because he lived righteously by Asha, Ahura Mazda supported him. In many cuneiform inscriptions denoting his achievements, he presents himself as a devout believer, the very embodiment of truth, perhaps even convinced that he had a divine right to rule over the world. In the lands that were conquered by his empire, Darius followed the same Achaemenid tolerance that Cyrus had shown, and later Achaemenid kings would show. He supported faiths and religions that were alien, as long as the adherents were submissive and peaceful, sometimes giving them grants from his treasury for their purposes. Also, Darius was mentioned in the book of Ezra from the Hebrew Old Testament, in a passage that describes his decree to continue the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was begun by Cyrus, and specifying Persian financial support and supplies for the temple services. This decree is dated approximately also to 519 BC. Their generous funding of the temple gave Darius and his successors the continued support of the Jewish priesthood. As we have discussed, the Persians spoke an Indo-European language, but they hadn't yet developed a written language of their own, and so the Persians were happy to use regional languages, and Persian royal inscriptions were almost always multilingual. For example, in Persia itself, they used the Elamite language and cuneiform script for administrative records. In Mesopotamia, they continued the use of Babylonian record-keeping, and in Egypt, they adopted local scripts, hieroglyphic and demotic, and papyrus scrolls. For the main administrative language, they chose the Semitic Aramaic on account of its widespread popularity and ease of use, and it quickly became the lingua franca, or common language, throughout the imperial bureaucracy. It was written on parchment or papyrus in an alphabetic script. It is generally thought that Darius was instrumental in bringing about the old Persian cuneiform script, presumably by gathering a group of scholars together, tasked to create a separate language system only used for Persis and the Persians as a means to emphasize his identity as ruler of Persia. It was used only for official inscriptions, like the Behistun inscription, for example, which is the earliest example of Old Persian that we have. And Old Persian inscriptions of earlier Achaemenid kings were thus carved under Darius's rule. One of the most significant events of Darius's early reign was the slaying of Intifernes, one of the seven noblemen who had deposed the previous ruler and installed Darius as the new monarch. The seven had made an agreement that they could all visit the new king whenever they pleased, except when he was having intercourse with a woman. One evening, Interfernes went to the palace to meet Darius, 
but was stopped by two officers who stated that Darius had retired for the night, and I'm sure they gave Interferenes a few winks in the process. Becoming enraged and insulted because he thought the men were lying, Interferenes drew his sword and cut off the ears and noses of the two officers. While leaving the palace, he took the bridle from his horse and tied the two officers together with it around their necks. The officers then went to the king and showed him what Interferenes had done to them. Darius began to fear for his own safety, as he thought that all seven noblemen had banded together to rebel against him, and that the attack against his officers was the first sign of revolt. He thus sent a messenger to each of the noblemen, asking them if they approved of Interferenes' actions. They denied and disavowed any connection with Interferenes' actions, stating that they stood by their decision to appoint Darius as king of kings. Taking precautions against further resistance, Darius sent soldiers to seize Interferenes, along with his son, family members, and any friends who were capable of arming themselves. Darius believed that Interferenes was planning a rebellion, but when he was brought to the court, there was no proof of any such plan. Nonetheless, Darius ordered that all males in Interferenes' family be executed. His wife persistently followed Darius around, weeping and wailing. Either because of his annoyance or because he genuinely took pity on the woman, he decided to give her the option of saving one person from execution, either her brother or her son. She chose her brother to live. Her reasoning for doing this was that she could have another husband and another son, but she would always have but one brother. Darius was impressed by her response and spared both the lives of her brother and son. The rest, though, were executed, and that is how one of the seven nobles met his death. Herodotus relays another notable incident during his consolidation of the empire, this one occurring around 520 BC. Apparently, Oretes, the man who had ensnared and executed Polycrates of Samos, decided to offer no help to Darius in putting down his revolt, and even killed Mitrobates, the man who questioned his manhood, and Mitrobates' son. I guess he was really offended after all. He also, as Herodotus puts it, removed all traces of both his body and his horse of a messenger that was sent to request aid from Darius. Well, now that the empire was firmly in Darius's control, he wanted to punish Oretes for his transgressions, but he did not think it was wise to march an army against him, as he had only begun to rule and didn't want to unsettle the state of affairs. So he gathered a group of 30 noble Persians, and they drew lots to determine who would gain the honor of helping the king. The winner was a man named Bagaius. He was tasked with delivering letters, signed and sealed by Darius, to the guards of Oratis. Written inside was a message that the guards were to assassinate the man they are to be protecting. So, he did, and after reading the letters, the two guards complied and stabbed Oratis to death with their akinakis, the Persian word for daggers. And so, in this way, indirect retribution for the cruel death of Polycrates of Samos came to Oratis. At some point shortly after, while Darius was out hunting, he sprained his foot as he dismounted from his horse. Apparently, the sprain was quite severe, and the bone was dislocated from its socket. Well, it's customary to always keep an Egyptian physician at his court, because they were thought to be the best in the art of medicine, so he consulted them first. But they employed violent remedies to treat it, and by twisting his foot, they caused even more damage. For a whole week, Darius was in agonizing pain. Until finally, someone who had been at Sardis earlier recommended that he seek Demosides of Croton, who, as we have mentioned, had been at the court of Polycrates. But after the tyrant's death, he was kept as a slave of Oretes, so Demosides was ordered to be brought to Darius immediately. 
Demosthenes employed Greek remedies, following vigorous treatments with gentle ones. That in short time, he restored Darius's foot to good health. It's important to note here that broken bones in the ancient world didn't always heal correctly and quickly like they do with modern medicine. Abnormalities were common after a bone breakage, so the fact that Demosthenes was able to repair his foot with no ill side effects greatly impressed and thrilled Darius. He was thereafter given great esteem. He was given the largest luxurious house in Susa and was able to eat in the presence of Darius, a great honor. When the Egyptian physicians were about to be impaled for their failures at treating the great king, Demosthenes interceded on their behalf and saved them. Demosthenes had such great influence with Darius that he would become the first of many Greek physicians to live at the Persian court. After securing his authority over the entire empire and healing his broken foot, Darius thus turned his attention to conquest. He chose as his first target the northeastern frontier against the Scythians along the eastern shore of the Caspian Sea. The campaign frustrated him because the Scythian nomads refused to fight a proper pitched battle, instead choosing an annoying but effective guerrilla campaign. By 519 BC though, Darius managed to secure some decisive victories capturing two of their leaders, one of which was the aforementioned Skunka in the Behistun inscription. In the end, the region was subjected to tribute, and Darius handpicked a chief to rule the region in his name. He then campaigned further eastward, where he managed to impose tribute from the regions of Gandhara and Taxila in 518 BC, which encompassed parts of modern-day Afghanistan and northern Pakistan. Meanwhile, Arcesilus III was still ruling over Cyrene as king, Though, as we have described in the last episode, his powers were being limited. But in 518 BC, he could no longer accept the Cyrenian constitutional changes and tried to restore the rights and privileges of the monarchy held before his father. In the civil strife that followed, he was defeated and fled to the island of Samos. There, he recruited an army by promising to grant them land in Cyrene after their victory. Before he sailed back, he traveled to the oracle at Delphi to seek favorability for his return to Cyrene. The Pythia gave him this response. To four kings named Battus and four named Arcesilus, for eight generations of men, does Apollo grant the kingship of Cyrene? His advice is not to attempt to go beyond that. As for you, return to your own land in peace, and if you find a kiln full of wine jars, do not fire them, but send them away with a fair wind. If you fire them, do not enter the place surrounded by water. If you do, both you and the prize bull will die. Well, he ignored the priestess's advice and returned to Cyrene with his army. He was successful in regaining power and driving his political opponents into exile. His supporters received their land, but out of fear of backlash and ignoring the oracle's advice, Arcesilus III left Cyrene and went to the Cyrenean town of Barca, whose governor, Alazir, was his father-in-law. While in the Agora with his father-in-law, some Cyrenian exiles recognized him, so they approached and killed both of them. Arcesilus III was buried near his paternal ancestors in Cyrene, and he was succeeded by his son Battus IV, who ruled from 515 to 465 BC. Very little was known on his reign, so it appears to have been peaceful, as Cyrene continued to become a very wealthy town, exporting wheat, barley, olive oil, and silphium throughout the Mediterranean world. Back at Persia in 516 BC, Darius then embarked on a second campaign of conquest in the east. This time he led a sustained effort to solidify his control over the territories of Central Asia and Bactria, or modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
Over the winter of 516-515 BC, he wintered in Gandhara, before leading his armies over the Hindu Kush mountain range through the Khyber Pass into India. Well, what the Greeks called India, though they meant only what is now Pakistan and Kashmir, and but a relatively small part of the modern state of India, around the Indus River Valley. The Greeks called the Hindu Kush both the Caucasus Indicos, or Indian Caucasus, and the Paropamisos, which derived from the old Persian Paraupari-Sena, or Beyond the Raised Land. During the 6th century BC, several small principalities had warred against each other. This decentralized region did not have any powerful state to dominate the others and organize into one kingdom, so Darius took advantage of the political disunity and penetrated into the region. His campaigns were successful, and he instituted the new satrapy of Indus. It would become famous for providing the Persians with gold dust, which flowed from the north down the Indus River. Herodotus relays an infamous story about how this gold was guarded by massive giant ants, although that obviously shouldn't be believed. Anyways, supposedly wishing to find out how far south the Indus River flowed, Darius appointed a Greek named Skylax of Carianda to sail down the Indus to its mouth at the Arabian Sea. Darius then marched through the Bolan Pass and returned through Arachosia and Drangiana back to Persia, while Skylax sailed westward around the Arabian Peninsula and then northward through the Red Sea before porting at Suez, Egypt. He then set off overland back to Darius's court. This entire period of exploration took Skylax around two and a half years. While Darius was off in the east, he had commissioned the creation of two new royal capitals. He began by rebuilding atop the flattened Elamite capital city of Susa, with two brand new palaces adorned in glazed brick, made with materials from all over the empire, timber, gold, lapis lazuli, which was a deep blue stone from Afghanistan, carnelian, a brownish red stone from India, turquoise, silver, ebony, and ivory. Although he built up Susa magnificently, and it would continue to serve as the principal administrative center of government. Darius, though, desired for a ceremonial capital of his own, somewhere where nobody else had built before. Thus, he chose a location 20 miles south of Pasargidae for his new royal capital of Persai, better known by its Greek name, Persepolis, or the Polis of the Persians. This is what later Greeks called it, and so the name stuck. But don't be misled. It had nothing to do with an actual polis, like that of Athens, Thebes, or Sparta. Its construction first began in 519 BC and was continued long after his death by subsequent members of the royal family. It was one of the most ambitious construction projects of the ancient world, but Persepolis's spectacular engineering achievements extended far beyond the city's walls. Its intricately designed and constructed water and drainage system were unrivaled anywhere, except maybe Carthage. Before the city was even constructed, Darius's engineers first laid down a drainage system. These would be covered, and water would also be brought in along the Kanat system, but then those drain pipes, which pumped the effluents out, were taken underground below the surface, never to be seen again. The complex sat along the river, and was built on a multi-level plain with the beautiful Zagros Mountains as a backdrop. The city's center was designed to enhance its stature, and was huge over 125,000 square meters. In order to achieve this, Darius's engineers had to modify the landscape by leveling out the area and putting it on an enormous 40-foot-high stone platform. He wanted his city to be seen from a distance, which makes it all the more grand and opposing. Persepolis, though, was a colossal engineering challenge with walls more than 60 feet high 
and 35 feet thick, and great halls featuring intricately designed columns, several palaces, and a royal treasury, much like the platforms of a lot of Assyrian palace complexes. The main palace consisted of a number of rooms, halls, and courts, laid out on a massive square grid plan. Each side was 200 feet long. It featured 72 decorative columns, 62 feet high, and the walls were adorned with gold and silver. Expensive tapestries and colorful tiles decorated with images of lions, bulls, and flowers. And the architecture of the palace synthesized traditions of many parts of the enormous Persian Empire. In fact, inscriptions record that thousands of artists, architects, craftsmen, and laborers, including women, along with literally tons of materials, were brought from the far reaches of the empire, including Greeks, to work with what they specialized in. Darius also imported works of art from all throughout the empire, and thus visitors to the palace saw imagery that emphasized and reflected the unique multiculturalness of the Persian Empire. Most ancient empires were built by massive slave labor, but Darius, much like Cyrus, believed in paying for their services. We will talk about with what shortly. And every worker was given his or her due, depending on their skill and quality. No expense was spared, and Persepolis would become the signature monument of Persian power and glory. Persepolis functioned as, among other things, the empire's chief ceremonial capital and the site of the great New Year festival, where tokens of tribute were ceremoniously given in procession by representatives of the many subject peoples. Visitors to the city entered the complex through the so-called Gate of All Nations, flanked by two huge guardian figures that resemble Assyrian Lamassu, or bulls with the heads of bearded men. Turning right, they would proceed to the Apadana, or the Audience Hall, an enormous square with towers at the four corners and porticos on three sides. This was preceded by a large double stairway, with reliefs showing delegates from all over the empire bringing tribute to the king. More on this shortly. Once inside, you would see an enormous double bullheaded capital that is now in Paris. The capital is part of a column that sits at the very top and supports the roof. The columns were derived from Egyptian and Greek models. Other visitors might follow the route, turning left down a processional way that led to the Hall of a Hundred Columns, an audience hall that was built by his son Xerxes. More on him in a future episode. Other palaces included the Takara, a much smaller building which Darius used as a winter palace. It too has reliefs of tribute-bearing dignitaries and was one of the few buildings that escaped destruction in the burning of the complex by Alexander the Great. One of the most effective cycle of propaganda images created by the Persians, and possibly anyone in the ancient world, can be found on the entrance stairway of the Apadana. The stairway is entirely covered in relief images of people, animals, and plants, all scaled to fit the variously sized spaces made of limestone. Approaching the stairway straight on, visitors will see images of Persian soldiers marching towards each other, and behind them a lion attacking a bull, representing the ferocity of Persian leaders and suggests the consequences for disobedience. On the stairway itself are relief images of soldiers and emissaries of the 23 different civilizations conquered by the Persians, all shown proceeding into the audience hall bearing gifts to the great king. As the anointed one of Ahura Mazda, Persian kings were owed maximum respect, symbolized by the performance of a ritual of public greeting that the Greeks called proskunesis. Depending on the subject performing it, this consisted either of a full prostration or of a deep bow from the waist coupled with a blown kiss. We can see evidence of this ritual on the relief by the emissaries. Each can easily be identified by their clothing, hairstyle, and weapons, distinctive to their region, and each also bears a gift particular to his area, 
such as Bactrian vessels and hides, Arabian robes and camels, Nubian elephant tusks and giraffes, and so on. One of the most effective reliefs, though, is in the Archaeological Museum of Tehran in Iran, and is the centerpiece of this entire relief program. It shows Darius enthroned, receiving tribute being given to him by some delegate. Behind the throne, his son Xerxes listens to the audience. Soldiers and royal adversaries flank the main characters in the image. However, Darius and Xerxes are on a platform above the others, further emphasizing their superior status. This is all very reflective of Persian art and architecture, which interestingly enough was very secular, in that there were no major religious monuments created, like the Egyptians and the Babylonians had done. Instead, all of their public art and architecture was propaganda for their kings. Another striking point is that in contrast to the Assyrians, scenes of warfare or hunting are not found on the walls of Persian palaces. Administratively, Darius stuck close to what Cyrus had done, with only a few key changes. By far his biggest reforms, though, focused on the structure of the empire and its system of taxation. This was probably a result of all of his internal rebellions, and so he decided that he needed to gain more control by weakening the power of provincial governors, called satraps, from the old Persian Exkoskapavan, or protector of the province. And so, according to Herodotus, he reorganized the empire into 20 provinces, or satrapies. Modern scholars have estimated somewhere between 20 and 30 satrapies, though. Anyways, Darius didn't invent the idea of provinces, as we discussed these were already in use with Cyrus, but he accelerated the extension of their use. When needed, he redrew political boundaries. For example, a new province west of the Euphrates was established separately from Babylonia, with its capital probably at Damascus. This was done to ensure that the troublesome Babylonians' power base was weakened. In Book 3, Herodotus provides a remarkable catalog of the empire's satrapies, very similar in tone to Homer's catalog of ships as he lists off who was in which province and all that each province was required to pay, beginning with Ionia and going from west to east. West of the river Halys, the old kingdom of Lydia, consisted of three provinces, but subject to two satraps. The Ionians and the Lydians were under one governor, who resided at Sardis, and the Phrygians, which included the Greek cities of the Propontis, under a governor whose seat was at Daskalon. These satraps did not interfere in the local affairs of the Greek cities, which were ruled by their own individual tyrants, and the tyrants did as they pleased, so long as they paid tribute and furnished military contingents. The tyrants liked Persian rule, which kept their power secure, and this explains the noteworthy fact that the Greeks of Asia Minor made no attempt to shake off the Persian yoke during the troubles which ushered in Darius's reign. The way things were for the Greeks was a microcosm of how it was for the other peoples in the empire, as the Persian monarchs wisely refrained from imposing a uniform system of administration throughout the empire and declined to uproot existing governors and procedures that functioned well. While local vassal kings were sometimes kept, the satraps that they reported to were usually Persian nobles from the families of the other six co-conspirators, with some exceptions, like Babylonia and Ionia. Each satrap lived in a royal palace with its own treasury, archives, and chancellery. His responsibilities included the collection of tribute in the form of gold, silver, or other resources unique to the area, and its annual shipment back to the capital keeping the peace, supervising local officials, facilitating military recruitment, dispensing justice, keeping administrative records, and enforcing the king's will in general. Each satrapy was also divided into sub-provinces, with their own governors which were chosen either by the royal court or by the satrap. Reporting to the satrap was a giant army of officials, chancellors, judges, governors, bureaucrats, and tax collectors, all loyal to Darius in order to manage the world's largest empire to that point. 
To ensure that one person did not gain too much power, each satrap had a secretary who observed the affairs of the state and communicated with Darius, a treasurer who safeguarded provincial revenues, and a garrison commander who was responsible for the troops. The civil authorities furnished supplies to the military, and the military provided protection in return. They all reported directly to the Persian king. In addition, Darius expanded on a concept that Cyrus had spearheaded, which was the appointment of the king's eyes and ears. They were men who were fiercely devoted to Darius and who would travel throughout the empire, checking up on the various satraps. They were tasked with ensuring both the satraps' loyalty and general good governance. If they found him to be withholding taxes or acting corruptly, they commanded a small army to remove the official in question. Thus, it promoted a check on governmental power. While Darius was still an autocrat, he was secure enough in his power that he entrusted power to others. The Persian Empire was more than just conquered people, but an effective bureaucracy. In fact, Herodotus reports that he conducted all of the affairs of empire, like that of a shopkeeper. This imperial shop, if you may, was coordinated by the Chancery, with headquarters at Persepolis, Susa, and Babylon, with Bactria, Ecbatana, Sardis, Daskalon, and Memphis having smaller branches. The Persian kings themselves seems to have involved a regular schedule of movement from one palatial capital to another, depending on the time of the year and occasion. For example, upland Ecbatana was the royal residence in the high summer, and lowland Susa and Persepolis during the colder months, as it was not as cold in the Persian heartland. Apart from its sheer practicality and symbolic value, this royal nomadic lifestyle may ultimately reflect the Persians' origins as transhuman pastoralists. In order to ensure that the king's eyes and ears could travel quickly and efficiently and to connect the farthest reaches of the empire, Darius would launch two audacious building projects. One would stretch over 1,500 miles, and the other would connect the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. In 515 BC, Darius commissioned his engineers to build a massive stone highway known as the Royal Road. Designed along the Assyrian model, it connected each provincial capital to one another from Susa to Sardis. There are at least two major routes that have been identified. The longest one went through one of the passes of the Zagros Mountains. Scholars aren't certain which, though. Then to the Tigris, and on to the upper Euphrates. And finally, on through Cappadocia to Sardis. A shorter one went through the same pass in the Zagros, then to the Tigris, but at this point it diverged to the lower Euphrates, through Cilicia, into Phrygia, and finally to Sardis. This was quite the engineering feat because the road would have to traverse through mountains, forests, and deserts. They did not have asphalt or cement, but they had knowledge of packing gravel or tiny rocks. Laying down a stone road is vital in a terrain, where there could be a high water table. You don't want to get your feet or cart stuck in the mud, so you have to raise the surface up. That means laying down some sort of surface initially that will either absorb the groundwater or not allow it to displace the road. It's not drained or anything with a gutter system, so it's not as advanced as some of the later Roman roads, but still, it was extremely effective for its time. Being over 1,500 miles, it would take a three-month's journey on foot, but could be covered on horseback in just seven days, a feat which was accomplished through a system of checkpoints, called Kapar Kana, or Angarayan in Greek, where messengers could get a hot meal, a place to rest, and a fresh horse. There were 111 of these rest stations, or inns, every 18 miles. If it was urgent enough, then there was a courier-in-waiting that could ride on, like runners in a relay race. To ensure safety, watchmen were posted all along the road. The royal road was so effective that it earned the admiration of the Greeks. As Herodotus writes, There is no faster system in existence than that of these Persian messengers. Neither snow nor rain, nor heat nor darkness of night, 
prevented them from accomplishing their task, proposed to them with the utmost speed. The royal road also facilitated travel for commercial purposes. Darius also became the latest Egyptian king to try and dig a giant canal linking the Mediterranean and the Red Sea via the Nile River. But this time, Darius would be successful, well somewhat. With the Persian knowledge of hydrology, his engineers used digging tools made of bronze and iron to first open the canal. Then they lined it with stone for his ships to traverse. It would take seven years to complete the 130-mile-long waterway with a massive labor force. I say somewhat, because parts of the canal were not waterways, but points where the ships could be dragged until they reached another deeper portion where they could again sail their course. Regardless, Darius's somewhat canal would make Egypt even more prosperous than it had been under native Egyptian rule. But back to the royal road for a minute. It had another huge consequence as it brought Central Asia nearer to the Aegean and helped to open the east to Western curiosity. It must have had an incalculable effect in widening Greek ideas of geography, and its influence can be seen on the importance that it had on the first Greek maps, made by Anaximander and Hecateus of Miletus, as we have previously discussed. Convinced as a straight line running east and west, the royal road plays on one of the maps used by Herodotus practically the same way the equators played in the modern atlas. The longitudes were determined by the conception that the Nile and the Danube, the two greatest rivers known by the Greek world, were in the same meridian, and the features of the earth were systematically arranged around them. This attempt to apply mathematical principles to the earth naturally produced maps that to our fuller knowledge appear grotesque, but it would be hard to overstate the intellectual gains that these Ionian investigators were making, and their development of geography was certainly influenced by the Persian construction of the royal road. The centralized nature of the Persian Empire is made clear from its tribute collection. Each satrapy was to supply an annual amount of tribute based on its relative wealth and resources in the form of both silver and gold talents. Other types of tribute given were horses, grain, and eunuch boys, among many others. Neighboring kingdoms, although not technically under Persian control, even provided gifts. The Nubians, for example, gave annual tribute of gold, logs of ebony, and elephant ivory, while the Arabs provided frankincense, a luxury item for incense. But precious metals were still the primary method of tribute, and those paid in silver were measured with the Babylonian talent, and those in gold with a Euboean talent. I couldn't find a reasoning behind why the Euboean talent, but the Babylonian talent was probably because Babylonia contributed the largest amount of silver at 1,000 talents, while India paid the most gold dust with 360 talents. The only area exempt from tribute was Persis. Moreover, Herodotus comes up with a grand total annual assessment of over 14,500 silver talents. To put this in a Greek perspective, that sum would be almost 30 times the total annual revenue of the Athenian's naval empire at its height in the classical period. While Herodotus's list of tribute is not necessarily accurate, it is certain that vast amounts of silver and gold were now being collected and stored in the royal treasuries, and so the logical next step, and the one Darius took, was to use these precious metals to mint the first Persian coinage, known as the Dariaka, or Darikos in Greek, after Darius, of course. In English, it is called the Derek. It became the universal currency for the Persians, and was needed to regulate trade and commerce throughout the empire. Gold Dereks were minted at Persepolis on the king's orders with a purity of 95%, while silver Dereks were minted by important generals and satraps in the provinces, being the preferred form of payment for the Greek mercenaries in Anatolia. A gold derrick equaled about 20 silver ones. Their purity was backed by the Persian state. 
Darius used his new coinage as a very effective means of propaganda, as he could circulate a standard image of himself as a strong ruler throughout the many corners of the empire, and in this way he became the first living ruler to have his image placed on coinage. After all, the idea of coinage was only about a century old at this point. This is something though that Alexander, the Hellenistic kings, and the Roman emperors would emulate later. Bronze was a good medium for a dye because it was harder and could easily imprint gold and silver. The lower die would be secured to an anvil, while a second die was placed on top and then secured to a punch. Everything then would be struck with a mallet, forcing the metal into the shape of the coin. Images of the king or emperor went on the front of the coin, called the obverse, while the back of the coin, the reverse, held a design that indicated where it was struck, another propaganda image, or it could have had some other design completely. For the Persian Derek in particular, the reverse featured some sort of rectangular relief, probably the maker's mark, and the obverse often shows Darius, and later his successors, carrying a bow and a quiver in a vigorous running pose. Archery was a skill highly prized by the Persians. In fact, Herodotus reports that the whole of a Persian's education, between the ages of 5 and 20, was devoted to instilling just these three virtues, to ride, to shoot straight, and to tell the truth. Anyways, the derrick was a major boost to international trade, and because of this, a slang term for it became archers, used by merchants throughout the empire. Trade in this period flourished, as the Nile to the Indus Valley was now under one regime. Because Persia controlled the Phoenician harbor cities, it had access to resources too, from the western Mediterranean. Moreover, the coastal areas of the empire, from western Anatolia to Egypt, were connected by sea trade. For example, ships from Ionia and the Levant imported oil, wine, metals, wood, wool, and other products into Egypt, who exported natron, a chemical needed for textile production, and other Egyptian goods in return. And naturally, the Persians levied a tax on these shipments, which was to be paid with the new derrick. Furthermore, overseas trade crossed political boundaries. Greek merchants were still active in Egypt at Nocritus, for example, and Phoenician traders still traveled all over the Mediterranean. In the eastern territories, sea trade must have existed across the Arabian and Indian seas, but the available evidence is extremely slim. Regardless, the derrick was huge for the Persians. It not only improved governmental revenue collection and overseas trade, but it also allowed Darius to institute new taxes on landed estates, marketplaces, and livestock, and use this revenue to improve existing imperial infrastructure. By funding large-scale irrigation projects in dry lands, he effectively made himself the owner of the water, for which all users were obliged to pay a tax. This new tax system also led to the formation of state banking and the creating of banking firms, most notably at Babylon. The revenues of this vast kingdom made the Persian monarch wealthy beyond comparison. Everything about the king was meant to emphasize his grandeur and superiority to ordinary mortals. His purple robes were more splendid than anyone else's. The red carpet spread for him to walk upon could not be trod on by anyone else. His servants held their hands before their mouths in his presence to muffle their breath so that he would not have to breathe the same air that they did. In the sculptures adorning Persepolis, Darius was depicted as larger than any other human being. To display his concern for his loyal subjects, as well as the gargantuan scale of his resources, the king provided meals for some 15,000 nobles, courtiers, and other followers every day. Although he himself ate hidden from the view of his guests, except of course, his physician Demosthenes, who achieved that right. The Greeks, in awe of the Persian monarch's power and lavishness, would refer to him as the Great King. 
However, the Persian kings did not regard themselves as gods, but rather as the agents of their supreme god, Ahura Mazda. But in every respect, Darius wanted the Persian Empire to relay the message of power, protection, and stability to those within his borders, and especially to those beyond, as those unconquered lands on the fringe of the Persian Empire, wishing to join the prosperity, were allowed to signal their entrance through a symbolic tribute of earth and water to the great king. On the next episode, we continue our story with Darius. Up until now, his imperial efforts were focused on consolidating his empire after revolts and enacting his reform program, with a few eastern conquests sprinkled in there against a few Indus Valley and Scythian tribes. However, although he was able to enact tribute from some of the Scythian tribes on his northeastern frontier, Scythian tribes and territories were numerous, extending all along the northern borders of his empire from the Balkans in Thrace to the Jasartes River, where Cyrus had met his end. Future conflicts with those tribes along the Black Sea would draw Darius's attention to the west, across the Hellespont, into Europe, and eventually with the mainland Greeks. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 34, Rising Tensions. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Naiads, Water Nymphs, from his album The Lyre of Hermes. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.